It is Sunday evening, and by now, you've already made probably hundreds of choices since you woke up. In fact, probably your first choice that you made was when you woke up this morning, unless you were woken up against your will, uh, in which case your first choice was, how do I respond to the person, to the thing, or to the urge that woke me up out of my slumber? To live a day, let alone to live a lifetime as a human being, is to experience a barrage of choices. When we're born, of course, our choices are more limited. As we grow older, the amount of choices and the consequences of those choices gets more complicated. Our choices go from, will I cry or not, to, should I go to college or not? What vocation am I being led to or should I choose? Should I get married or should I remain single? Should I switch jobs? Should I buy a car or that house? And should I do it in this way or in this timing? In fact, why don't you take a moment to discuss with someone next to you what was the first choice you remember making today? And maybe what was the most significant choice that you made today? Okay. The first choice you made today and the most significant choice you made today. Just a couple minutes. All right, just let's hear some of the answers that you guys are coming up with. What were uh, some of the first choices uh, out, out in the congregation today? Anybody, just start rattling them off. Whether or not to get out of bed. Was it, someone say coffee? Is that a choice? <laughs> What's another decision that you made early in the morning or whenever you got up? Huh? Blueberries or pear. Blueberries or pear. I like your choices, privileged choices. What, what was a significant choice someone made today? Blueberries or pear, obviously, that's a good one. Yeah. You could say coming to worship, that would be, you know. What? Order what? what order to do your work in, that's a good one. Yeah. yeah. Alone time and family time, yeah. That's tough when you're a busy person. Important choice. Anyone else? What's an important choice? Oh, oh. It's good. good. And there's no one to suck up to you, so that's just LL just saying she turned off football for 15 minutes to read the Bible. That's awesome. Yeah, awesome. To be human, right, is, is to make choices. But as a disciple of Jesus, I am further concerned with whether or not the choices I make are any good. Like, are they, are they good choices? Are they faithful, and are they full of faith? This evening, we continue on in our sermon series, The Rise of the King, which is a journey through the book of 1 Samuel. And last week, we walked through 1 Samuel 19 together, and as that story came to an end, David was on the run for his life. King Saul was trying to kill him. In chapters 21 and 22, which I'm just going to story tell now, we're going to skip over those, uh, David stops while he's on the run at this town called Nob. And while he's there, he bumps into this guy, Ahimelech the priest. He's the high priest of Israel, and he goes into this little place of worship, and David says, uh, I, I'm on a special mission from Saul. David made up a lie. He says, I'm on this special mission from Saul, and I had to leave so quick that I don't have any food, 
for me or my men, my small group of men, and I don't have a, a weapon. Do you have anything here that could help me out? And so Achimelech says, well, I can't give you the, the, the bread of the altar, but I've got day-old consecrated bread that I could give you and your men. And, and David's like, okay, I'll take that, day-old bread. It's pretty good. Uh, and then he says, well, the only weapon I have here is the sword of Goliath, whom you killed back in, he didn't say this, but back in chapter 17. Uh, so, <laughs> I didn't think they think in chapters back then, but uh, so, so David gets this sword and, and, and he gets food for his guys and then they move on. David leaves for safety in the south in Judah. That's where David grew up. That's where his family is. And so he's got some loyal people down in the south. But things are never just that simple, right? There's this man named Doeg who is the chief shepherd of Israel and he's loyal to Saul and he happened to be in Nob, at the, ta- at the time that David went to Ahimelech the priest, and he got the bread, and he got the sword. And so Doeg tells Saul that David was a knob, and that Ahimelech the priest helped him out. And as a result, Saul comes to Ahimelech, and he has him killed. And not only Ahimelech, but all the priests associated with him, 85 priests, and their families, and the people, and the livestock of Nob. Saul's pretty deranged, isn't he? This is a new low for him. As it turns out, one priest survives from this line, and his name is Abiathar. Abiathar took this priestly vestment, you've heard of this before in the scriptures, it's called an ephod, it's kind of like a, a vest or a a stole or something fancy used in worship, and in this ephod, there's a little pocket, and in the pocket are the urim and the thummim, and these are these little devices that you can cast to the ground like dice or lots, and you can help discern the will of God with them. Now, when Abiathar came to David and told him what had happened, David felt remorse He knew that his lie had led to the death of all of these people, and so he made a covenant with Abiathar and said, because of me, all your people are wiped out. Stay with me, because the guy who killed all those priests and your family, he's after me as well, and as long as you're with me, I'll keep you safe. Okay, so they enter into this covenant agreement together. Now, we pick up the story in 1 Samuel 23, David on the run from Saul, and Saul on the active hunt for David. And as I walk us through the story, pay attention to the choices David makes, to the choices Saul makes, but more importantly, notice how they come to make those choices. All right, I'm going to start with the first 14 verses. 1 Samuel 23. When David was told, look, the Philistines are fighting against Calah and are looting the threshing floors, he inquired of the Lord saying, shall I go attack the Philistines? The Lord answered him, go attack the Philistines and save Calah. But David's men said to him, hey, here in Judah, we're afraid, okay? But how much more then if we go to Calah against the Philistine forces? Once again, David inquired of the Lord. And the Lord answered him, Go down to Calah, for I am going to give the Philistines into your hand. So David and his men went to Calah, fought the Philistines, and carried off their livestock. He inflicted heavy losses on the Philistines and saved the people of Calah. 
Now, Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, had brought the ephod down with him when he fled to David at Calah. Saul was told that David had gone to Calah, and he said, God has delivered him into my hands, for David has imprisoned himself by entering a town with gates and bars. And Saul called up all his forces for battle to go down to Calah to besiege David and his men. When David learned that Saul was plotting against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod. David said, Lord, God of Israel, your servant has heard definitely that Saul plans to come to Calah and destroy the town on account of me. Will the citizens of Calah surrender me to him? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? Lord God of Israel, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will. Again, David asked, will the citizens of Calah surrender me and my men to Saul? And the Lord said, they will. So David and his men, about 600 in number, left Calah and kept moving from place to place. And when Saul was told that David had escaped from Calah, he did not go there. David stayed in the wilderness strongholds in the hills of the desert of Ziph. I want to go to Ziph someday. Sounds cool. All right, so David's on the run. I mean, Saul has his armies against him, but David hears that the Philistines, the mortal enemies of Israel at this time, were fighting against the Israelite town of Calah. Calah's this, like, little agricultural town, a breadbasket town. It was a border town on the edge of Israel, and it bumped up against the border of Philistia, of where the Philistines lived. Uh, Caleb was isolated from central Israel. It, it, it didn't have other big cities. It didn't have a standing army. It was literally a border town, an outpost kind of town. Without support from other places, without a standing army, Kela and towns like it would easily fall to the Philistines, and then the Philistines would have an increasing foothold in Israelite territory. Now, Kela was the kind of town that strategists and, and the wealthy who lived behind the strong walls of the interior cities, they didn't care much about towns like Kela or the people that lived there. It's the type of town that an aristocrat, uh, uh, that for an aristocrat, it, you know, it might be sacked, you know, and then we'll wait till the weather's better, and, and then we'll go out and, and, and we'll take it back when, in the springtime or in the summer when the weather's better. And we're not going to waste our time with it right now, right? Meanwhile, the farmers and the wives and their children, the faithful who produce the grain in Kela that then gets taken and, and eaten in Jerusalem and in Gibeah and all of these places where there are aristocrats and kings and king's courts. Well, in the meantime, those people are enslaved or killed or displaced, right? There's no one there to protect them. And so David hears about this. And see, David knows a thing or two about being displaced and about being neglected. In the time he's been on the run from Saul, David ventured back to his hometown in Judea, and, and there were these other fugitives that began to come out of the, the woodwork, and, and they began to, to ask David, like, what are you about? And maybe we could join up with you, because these are types of people who were in debt to the king, uh, who were maybe wanted on petty charges. Uh, they're people of different ethnicities or mixed ethnicities, not pure Israelites. And so they align themselves with David. And David said, sure, come on board. Hey, we're all running from the same dude. 
Nearly 600 of these men joined David from various backgrounds and ethnicities. They were kind of like this group of outlaws roaming the land, escaping, and trying to find food wherever they could. I think it actually would be kind of a cool movie to make, but I don't know. I've got a script in my mind. So like the residents of Cala, they were either despised by King Saul or simply not important enough to really go after. Now let's just pause for a moment and consider David's position, okay? He's on the run for his life from King Saul, the current king of Israel. Uh, And we know that God is with David, right? But at the same time, the most powerful man in the kingdom is after David. And this guy, Saul, has spies everywhere, and that means he's got eyes everywhere, just like that guy, Doeg, who turned David in in the town of Nob. Now, if you were, let's say you were a security consultant for David, like a private contractor or maybe someone in the witness protection program, and you were advising him, what kinds of things might you tell David to do or not do? Like, don't get involved in local skirmishes. Uh, Lay low. Tell them to lay low. Travel light. Stay off social media. Don't use your credit cards. Uh, Don't get in the fight with the Philistines and Kayla. Right? Like that, that would probably get the word out that you are there. That's exactly what experts might tell David in this situation. And if you follow those expert advice, you know, their advice, you might even be considered astute, wise to the sign of the times, prudent and reasonable. But you wouldn't necessarily be considered to have made a faithful choice. Not unless you also considered, alongside those experts, not unless you also considered the word of the living God. And that's what David does. He knows he's on the run. He knows he ought to lay low. But as a young man who has been a zealot for God uh, and for his country, as a man who has defended Israel against the Philistines since he could hold a sword in Saul's army, um, it's hard to hear of what was going on in Kayla and to just not do anything. And so David inquires of the Lord, should I go and attack these Philistines? To which the Lord replies, go and attack the Philistines. Save Kayla. Now, how the Lord actually said this, your guess is as good as mine. Um, a voice from heaven, maybe. An impression inside of his body, could be. Writing in the sky, I mean, anything's possible, unlikely. Uh, an angel, that happens in the Bible a lot. That, that could happen. It, it doesn't say how God told David to go attack the Philistines and save Kayla. But what we do know is that Abiathar, the priest, is with him. And Abiathar brought in his ephod the Urim and the Thummim. Urim and Thummim, like I said before, are kind of like these dice, but you might think of it as a holy flipping of the coin. Okay, so it it might be something like this. Okay, Lord, I've got this decision to make. Do I go rescue Kayla or not? Heads, I'm taking that as you're saying go save Kayla. Tails, I don't do it. Okay, so that's in essence what the Urim and the Thummim would do for a person. The point isn't so much the method as it is that David sought the Lord when making a choice. It's the difference between making any choice and making a faithful choice. While hypothetical experts may have advised him to hide out and not even bother with a town like Kayla, David seeks God, and he seeks him twice, once for personal guidance, should I go, 
And then when his men doubt, like, hey, we don't want to get involved, he asks again, and God says, I not only go, but you will prevail. So he gives him confidence. A few verses later, David learns that Saul has found out that he's now staying in Calah, and David is concerned that Saul is going to come there and that he's going to kill those people to get to David, and he's already heavy with guilt because of what happened in that town of Nob. And so David again inquires of the Lord. Will Saul come here? Yes. Will, will they turn me over to Saul if Saul comes here? Yes. So David makes a faithful choice to go hide out in the wilderness of Ziph. Now we're 14 verses into this chapter, and David has made two faithful choices because he first sought the advice of God, and second, because he acted in faith in response to that advice from God. Now, let's observe briefly how Saul makes his choices. Saul doesn't seek the help of the Lord in this chapter. He still hasn't even repented of past bad choices he's made in previous chapters. He's already been told by Samuel the prophet that he's gone against God and that he will have his kingdom torn away from him, and yet his posture has not been one of humility. It's been a posture of defiance. In this case, Paul is acting delusional. Because of the narrator, we know that God is with David and has been guiding David every step of the way. But Saul finds out where David is. He finds out that David's in Calah. Now, what do we know? God told him to go there. What does Saul think? Yes! He says, literally, the Lord has delivered David into my hands. How does he know that? Did he ask God? He's delusional into thinking that everything that might fall into his favor, what we often say in Christianese, the door is just opened for me. It must be God's will. Really? Really? Just because the door opened for you? Like, check yourself before you wreck it, wreck yourself. Okay. Uh, pride comes before the fall, I think, is the, uh, is the word from, from the Proverbs. Okay, so that's where we're at, up to 14 verses. Uh, sorry for that rap interlude. Um, <clears throat> All right, now we have this little, this little piece here in verses 15 uh, through 18. So while David was at Horish in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horish and helped him to find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You'll be king over Israel and I'll be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. And then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horish. Now, th this small interlude seems a little bit out of place compared to what comes before it and what's going to come after it, but it serves a really important purpose. In the midst of a cat and mouse game between David and Saul, Jonathan reminds us, the reader, and the Israelites, the original hearers and readers, that God is with David. Yet again, Jonathan affirms his covenant loyalty to David, which in the future, should there ever be any question, okay, I'll just say this real quick. This story that we have happened uh, a, a, a thousand years before Jesus, but when it was canonized and written into a scroll form, it was 500 years later, and the people are in Babylon, and they're wondering, who is this King David, and his line, is his line really going to produce a Messiah? 
And he's, is he even legitimate? So when you're reading this in captivity and you've got these insertions like Jonathan saying, uh, I'm pledging my covenant loyalty, Jonathan, the heir of the throne to Saul, it, it legitimizes David's kingship. And that's the point of this little interlude. And it also adds this dramatic flair because from this point on, David and Jonathan will never see each other alive again. And we know how deep their friendship was. It's a sad moment as well. At least they won't see each other till the new creation. All right, let's finish up the chapter, starting in verse 19. The Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah and said, is not David hiding among us? Now, so now these, these people where David's hiding, they're going to turn him into Saul. And Saul's son Jonathan went to David. Wait, I already read that. Uh, <clears throat> now, your majesty, come down whenever it pleases you to do so, and we'll be responsible for giving him into your hands. Saul replied, oh, bless you. Bless you for your concern for me. Go and get more information. Find out where David usually goes and who has seen him there. They tell me he's very crafty. Find out all of his hiding places he uses and, and then come back to me with definite information. Then I'll go with you. If he's in the area, I'll track him down among all the clans of Judah. That's Saul's tactic. So they set out and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. And now David and his men were in the desert of Maon in the Arabah, south of Yeshimon. Saul and his men began to search, and when David was told about it, he went down to the rock and stayed in the desert of Moan. When Saul heard this, he went to the desert of Moan in pursuit of David. I mean, this is cat and mouse. I mean, they're just chasing each other around these places. Saul's going along one side of the mountain. David and his men were on the other side of the mountain. I can just keep picturing the, a dog chasing a squirrel around one of those poles, you know. Keep chasing each other around. And as Saul and his forces were closing in on David and his men were to capture him, a messenger came to Saul saying, come quickly, the Philistines are raiding the land, the part of the land that Saul must have cared about, because then Saul broke off his pursuit and went to meet the Philistines. And that's why they call this place Selah, Hamakoleth. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. We've come to the end of the chapter, and Saul has made all kinds of choices without once consulting Yahweh. But how does he make his choices? Well, Saul actually does something pretty practical. He does something most of us do without even batting an eye, and he does something that's not entirely wrong. In fact, it's pretty wise. It's just not the complete picture. What Saul does is he, he seeks experts, and he seeks opinions, and he seeks his advisors. Word of mouth. How many times have you ever sought information on something by just posting it on Facebook? What's your, what, I'm in the market for a new dishwasher. What's the best one? Go. And then, pff, and you're just like, well, like 14 people said the Bosch is the best, but then the Whirlpool got to, you know, I, I don't know. Like people really make decisions on that. Trust me, like whether or not to attack the Philistines is different than buying a dishwasher, but Ask Nathaniel, buying a dishwasher can be frustrating. Okay. So Saul seeks these experts. He seeks a popular opinion. Um, he wants to find out everything about David. He, but he doesn't at all seek 
the Lord in any of this? Like, he doesn't ask the deeper question, should I even be doing this? Okay, so just, just pause a minute. Like, what, what is this narrative? Like, why am I even preaching a sermon on it? Like, what does this, why is this in the Bible? To be completely honest, like, when we're doing biblical studies in a, in a book like this, what is this chapter for? It's a secession narrative. It, 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 by the time this book is, of the Bible is transferred from oral tradition, right, to written tradition, Israel is in Babylon. They're in captivity. The prophets are already looking forward to a Messiah, to an anointed deliverer, one from the line of David. And these stories are intended to give confidence that David and therefore the Messianic line are legitimized by God. And they do a great job of that. This story in 1 Samuel 23 is not a lesson intended to encourage us to mimic David in some way. The, the lesson here is not, hey, get a group of vigilante outlaws and start a rebellion. Like, that's, Star Wars does all that really well. Rebel Alliance or the Resistance or whatever they're going to call it in the next movie. And, and I would go further to say the story is not really about how David heard from God. Like, it's not like, I didn't bring my lots to cast or my, I don't have any Urim or Thummim to give you today. I'm sorry about that. Uh, it's not about prophets and oracles and flipping coins and magic eight balls. It's not about method. But the fact that David sought the will of God at all before he made these big choices, now there's something there. That the relationship, the disposition of David, now that's central. That's something that we can take out of this passage. So what does this passage have to say for you and I in the 21st century? Besides legitimately like, yes, David is the, the legitimate king and God is with him and God is with his Messiah. That, that, that's important stuff, by the way. We base our theology on things like this. But it's not very applicable, is it? And I know y'all want some application. So, okay. Well, first, of course, it does point to the legitimacy of David and Jesus, the one who comes from his line. And as we look to Jesus, we see one who, like David, was dependent on God's will and seeking the will of the Father everywhere you look. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus is praying. He's seeking the will of the Father. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't see the Father do for, you know. So all of this is in those texts. Isabella Hansen beautifully read from Luke 6. And we see Jesus in that passage pulling away right before he has to make critical decisions. When he comes out of that night of prayer down from the mountain, that's when he picks his 12 disciples. And I want you to just notice, notice something. In the David story when he says, go up to Kayla and I'll bring them into your hands, do you know what he didn't say? He didn't say everyone in your army would make it out alive. And he didn't say you would make it out alive. He just said that you would deliver the Caleb from the Philistines, right? And, and when God directs Jesus to these 12 disciples, one of them is Judas Iscariot. And I don't know quite what to do with that. All I am saying is that when we seek the will of God, it's not always roses. It's not always happily ever after. Well, it is in the telos of time, but maybe not in your lifetime. As a church seeking to be 
and make disciples of Jesus. That's like part of our purpose statement. As a church seeking to be and make disciples of Jesus, we can learn a thing or two from observation. Both David and Jesus and the apostles who would come after Jesus model a disposition of dependence on God when they make their choices. They have an expectation that God will speak. And we can have that expectation too. In fact, Hebrews chapter one sums it up nicely. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the entire universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So what the Hebrews writer is saying is God speaks to us through Jesus, his, his Son. Jesus, and, and he speaks to us through the Holy Spirit whom Jesus has given us through our faith in him. So through the Son and the Spirit, God speaks through his word and through prayer and through the community of the disciples who trust and follow the Lord. So to make faithful choices implies a disposition of dependence on God and an expectation that he'll actually guide us. And I want to say that this disposition of dependence on God includes two important aspects. The first is the importance of a healthy interior life. What does that mean? It means a life of prayer, a life of regular reflection on the scriptures, a life of regular times of silence for listening, a time to reflect on my own attitudes, my own passions, my own feelings and experiences throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout the last five years of my life. The same for you. That's part of the interior life. Developing an interior life is a lifelong pursuit. And I found that it comes in fits and starts, but the consistency is key of just keep stumbling in the right direction of seeking more and more of the Lord and what is he doing in me and in the people around me. It is not something to wait to develop when you have a massive choice to make. Like, I'll put it off, I'll develop an interior life when I've got to make this massive choice in my life. When it comes to making faithful choices, developing a healthy interior life with God attunes you to his voice, to his way, to his will, so that when you're really seeking, God, are you in this? God, are you for this or that? In this choice that I've got to make, you actually have heard him before. And you know how he speaks to you. Now, the other side of the disposition coin is humility. We can learn to listen to God. We can learn to know the scriptures. And we can know our own voice and affections quite well. But if we aren't humble and willing to obey God when he speaks, we'll find that most often we'll either avoid seeking him altogether because we don't really want to know what he has to say or he'll stop speaking as loudly. You know, before chapter 23 in 1 Samuel, Saul actually sought God quite a few times, five or six that I can think of off the top of my head. David, 
you know, David seeks God too. Now here's the difference, is that Saul sought God a bunch of different times, but most of those times he didn't obey God, right? And, and David seeks Yahweh's advice on things, and, and he does what Yahweh says. And, and the question is, what do we want? Like if you're thinking of a choice that you've made recently or that's coming up for you or you're in the midst of making, what do you really want? Do we really want God to be God or do we want him to bless our agenda? Do we really want God to weigh in on our choices or do we just want to make our own choices and then throw up a quick prayer and, and then rubber stamp our agenda with some imaginary seal that says, I prayed over this, it's God certified. Bam! As, as we bring this sermon to a close, and I promise I'm doing that, I'm on my way there, uh, I want to say something I want to say that learning to make faithful choices, to discern the will of God, is a lifelong process. Like, it's not something I've mastered, although I've come a long way, and it's certainly not something that I can do in a sermon. I can't just, like, data dump, and then, oh, you've got it now, and uh, one sermon, and that's it, and now you can discern the will of God. I I couldn't do it in ten sermons. I I don't think a sermon is the right vehicle to really practice this together. That being said, there are some practicalities, some concrete steps that you can begin to think about. And in your bulletin, I I inserted a a little write-up. It may look familiar to some of you. About three years ago, I preached on discernment, and uh, and I included that as well, but you probably lost it, so there's another one. Uh, If you didn't get one in your bulletin, there's bulletins on the back, and there's a stack in the other room uh, on the small group table. But this is a tool intended to set you on a trajectory. It, it, it is not um, to serve you as the end-all, be-all guide for decision-making. And, and as you and I, as we as a church, continue following Jesus together, I, you know, I'd love to connect. There'll be seasons in your life where you're just like, I'm hungry for this. I'm hungry to, to know more about the Ignatian exercises or and. I'll geek out with you all day. That's, that's the kind of stuff I love. But I also know that if you're not hungry for it, and if the, the, the soil is not fertile, shall I say, um, I, I could just start blasting you with all of these things, and uh, you're just like, I'm not, I'm not there. I don't, I, I don't need it right now, okay? So, so this is a practical thing that you can look at, um, and it can set you on a trajectory of learning. There's even uh, some resources on the back of it. And I've got more if you're interested. But let me close with, um, with the three steps of decision-making. This is based on a work by Albert Haas. Um, and the first one is this. It's awareness. We first pray for God to help us see where our decision might be clouded by the blinders of self-preservation or self-image or self-gratification. It, basically, the self. This is about being self-aware. Wise Christian counsel is so helpful in this beginning awareness stage. So, here's what I want to say to you. Nurture spiritual friendships. We kind of talked about that last week with David and Jonathan, but I would say it again. Nurture spiritual friendships. Friendships with faithful, growing followers of Jesus. Why? Why? Because they know Jesus and his voice, and they'll tell you straight up, if they're good friends, 
That's not how Jesus talks. Jesus doesn't deal in shaming. Jesus doesn't deal in blaming. Jesus isn't mad at you. He doesn't want what's worse for you. Okay, so people that follow the Lord, people that know the word. Because God's will for us is going to line up with his word for us, right? If you've ever had, I've had this happen, a friend, you know, uh, I, I just know God's calling me to leave my wife. No, he's not. No, 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 he's not. God's calling me to, uh, I, I'm just a little low on uh, money. I, don't, I, I think it's okay that I'm going to cheat on my taxes. No, no, it's probably not okay. I, I don't see that lining. See what, you know what I'm saying? So, so people that know the word of God. And thirdly, and this is so important, people that really know you. And this is where vulnerability is important. Because the more a person who walks with you knows your pitfalls, your history, your desire, and your, yeah, your history, they can say, hey, like, look at what happened Look at these breadcrumbs. Like, God, I think God might be leading you here. Or, hey, you fell for this last time, remember? <laughs> and, and let's be careful. So, so that spiritual friendship and that awareness stage is so important. Okay. The, the second thing is assessment. This is the evaluation stage where you think through the options and see how they line up with Scripture. Are these options that I have in front of me in line with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, for example? That's a great just first place to start. The scripture might not address your very specific need or issue, but there is a guiding principle that, that might help you, right? Uh, so some questions to ask yourself. Is each option, if you're choosing between, say, two things, right? Like, like this is a big one. What college should I apply for? Or uh, uh, w- w- what career change? You know, I've got these options. Um, is each option equally loving or charitable? Which option would, be, would more fully meet a need in society or in the church or in the world? How would my decision positively or negatively affect my relationship with God or others or self? And finally, do I really want to do this? Do I have the passion to sustain this course of action? And then the third thing is, is action. You know, sometimes we get paralyzed, uh, you know, like God's got to send a lightning bolt out of the sky to get our attention or writing on the wall. Um, And certainly God is capable of those events. Uh, But we live in an age of the Spirit. If you're a follower of Jesus, through faith in Christ, the Spirit enables us to discern God's will through Scripture and prayer and the community, the spiritual friendships, right? And if God wants to email us directions or to write in the sky, He certainly can, but that wouldn't really be an act of faith, would it? All right. Ultimately, a good Christian sermon is not just going to give you good advice. It's going to give you good news. And the good news is that God has chosen to speak to us definitely or definitively by putting on flesh and dwelling among us in the person of Jesus the Christ. Does Jesus care about the choices that you have to make in your life? Yes, absolutely. Does Jesus have a word for you about these choices? You can count on it. And that is very good news. You are not alone. You don't have to stumble through life wondering if God cares for you, if he sees you, if he has a word for you. He does. 
And I've got more good news. This is really good news for me. If you screw it up, the decisions that you make, if you're living with the consequences of bad choices and selfish decisions, he can and he will forgive you. His death on the cross shows us that. And if you repent, he can work all things for the good of his glory and he can redeem it all. And that is amazingly good news. Lord, we thank you for being so gracious with us, for being a God who speaks. And I pray for all those who are here this evening who are dealing with especially difficult choices to make in their lives right now. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would enable them to, uh, to slow and to be with you to really seek your face. And I pray, God, that you would reward those efforts with clarity and direction and encouragement. Bless you, Lord. Amen.